Welcome to Sounds Familiar, a podcast where we discuss two pieces of media that share themes, plot points, or overarching ideas. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to keep up to date with our upload schedule, news, and discussions. Take your seat, grab your popcorn, and silence your cell phones now. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Sounds Familiar. My name is Caleb. My name's Stephanie. My name's Justin. And this week, we don't have any snippy quotes. <laughs> right, it's like there are lots of great lines in these movies, but we couldn't come up it, with, like, we couldn't, like, pick just one. It just didn't seem appropriate. Right. Also, one of the movies is in French. Yeah. <laughs> and, but the dialogue, though. <laughs> no, the dialogue is... This is a really good translation, thank God. Uh, like, the... It translates kind of the poetic quality, I think, that it must have had in the original French. Um, the, the American translation is good, I guess I should say. Oh, yeah, it was um, gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, it was done really well. Um, in case you just listen to these things without reading the description beforehand, the two movies we are discussing this week are Titanic and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, mm-hmm. um, which... Feels like a dramatic change of pace for us. <laughs> How so, Caleb? Um, okay. Uh, well, they're both very sincere. They're both, uh, rom- romances? What do you call a movie that's romantic, but, like, I we have a word for the romantic comedy, but, like, would you just call a movie that's about romance? I guess these these both technically qualify as a historical romance. There we go, because we can't just have regular romance. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we just we just can't quite believe it yet. <laughs> Do you believe in life after love? <laughs> I don't <Absolutely> know. Not. <laughs> after watching these, I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> um you could describe describe Titanic as a Dramedy, as not a dra- a dramatic tragedy, <laughs> not a dramatic comedy. Dramatic comedy, yeah. I mean, it has its comedic moments, but <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Both of these, interestingly, feel like they have tragic elements, but it's not like they have sad, sad endings. Like they have like uplifting endings, I think. But there's a there's there is, they do end kind of sadly. I, I was about to say I would describe the definition, the the ending of Portrait of a Lady on Fire as the sad. definition of sad and heartbreaking. But it's but it's also like it's what like in the movie they say don't regret, remember like it's no, supposed it is, to be a hopeful. It is thing. not it's only like despair, a, right? It, it, it is it is not despair, but still. Yes, it's it is sad. Yes. Yeah, and, and Titanic too. If it wasn't for the uh, the framing device, uh, the ending of that film would have been right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which that's a, I'm glad you said that, Justin, because that makes me think about something I was thinking about. But before we can get to that, we need to discuss our experiences with these films. Yes. Me, as a currently 26 year old white male, <laughs> white male, white. <laughs> I have this I have never seen either of these movies. This is my first time watching both of them. Yep, same. 
I am envious of you guys. Almost. Stephanie has seen both of them. Yeah, because I'm a lady and I like this kind of movie. Look, Portrait of a Lady on Fire was on my list. Same. But I haven't just just haven't found the time to watch it. Yeah. Titanic, I don't think I ever gave it the respect it truly deserves. No, you did it. Because, <laughs> because of its place in the culture. Yes. It always felt kind of like the butt of a joke. Oh, that makes me so mad. What? You so know what? I'll, I, I'll save that rant until later. It's fine. I... Yeah. Well, uh, like, like for me, this movie came out when I was six. Uh, I had just turned six. Uh, this came out December 19th, 1997. My birthday was on December 18th. Um, I obviously, as a tiny, tiny boy, uh, had no interest in this movie. And by the time uh, I got to the age where I would have been interested in it, it had just been, it was like the biggest movie in the world, so of course it had been parodied and referenced uh, to death, so I was like, oh, oh God, I'll just watch we, things we... I don't know that much about yet. I kind of understand Titanic, and boy, have I been wrong for the better part of <laughs> I know, decades. Justin, you just made me remember Thumbtanic, and I'm not going to forgive oh you for God. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, if for some reason uh, you're uncultured swine like Caleb and I, uh, and haven't seen this yet, please, for the love of God, watch this movie. It is as good as everyone says it is. It is so good. It was, like, I did not... I Look, I know it's James Cameron. I know when it came out, it was the highest grossing movie of all time. But well, there's I a reason still, for that. Th- there is a reason for that. It is a good movie. Yeah. Well, that I feel like that kind of a lot of really big movies that came out in the 90s got that treatment. Uh, I couldn't name all of them. Specifically, I'm thinking of The Matrix. Like, genuinely good, like, really fucking good movies with a lot to say. Like, really great world-building acting. Just, like, all-around great movies that just got, like, whatever the... the Whatever came before memes. Like, culturally memed to death because they were so big. Like, and, and that when we came kind of a little bit later we got that kind of first wave and we were like, oh, it must be kind of dumb. Like, but really it's because people in the 90s and 2000s were fucking irony poisoned and like didn't know how to just enjoy a good movie and be like, this is good. Wow, this is just really good. And instead had to like make a huge joke out of everything that like came across the culture. I'm, I'm talking as someone who was a child in the 90s and like the early 2000s, so I guess don't listen to me, but also maybe listen to me a little bit. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> I'm just saying like, I don't know. It's really sad to me because like, yeah, I got a little bit of that like kind of cultural concept of this movie and others before I actually watched them. And then while watching them, I was like, oh, so it's just a genuinely good movie that was popular for a reason. And like people who just have to make fun of anything that's popular just... I don't know, got their hands on it. Like, I, anyway, uh, so this is my probably third or fourth time seeing the movie. I, I haven't seen it that many times, partially because it's so long. It's a little daunting to tackle. Of course, that's also coming from someone who's watched the Lord of the Rings movies like two or three times every year <laughs> each. But um, still, but um, I, I, I don't know. I always really liked it. Um, it is long, but it feels like it has a justification for being long. Um, I I think what it does really well 
is what it sets out to do, which is to illustrate a real thing that happened in almost real time, like to make it seem extremely uh, visceral, extremely vivid, but also to give it that sort of cinematic touch so that it has a story you can follow and characters you can root for. And that, like, as far as making movies about things that actually happened, which I'm generally a little leery of, because <laughs> it can be difficult to do it well and do it respectfully, I feel like this was the best case scenario. Like, they didn't base the main characters on actual people that lived, which, in my opinion, would have been a pretty bad idea. <laughs> yeah. They, like, created um, relatable characters, um, a, a, in my opinion, a well-written romance um, and a good cast of supporting characters that really move the story along and keep it from being like disaster porn, which I feel like it could have run the it risk of being easily could have been. Yeah. Um, and that would have felt gross if we didn't really have those point of view characters and it was just look at these people right. suffer, you know, like right. that would have been really and now bleak. some of the supporting not even supporting some of the side characters, the background characters were actual people like, like the Astors. Um, and the unsinkable Molly Brown. Yes, but yes. it was, uh, you're right. It is, it was important to have the main point of view characters be fictional. Be fictional. Yes. Yeah. And, it, and yet it feels like something that could have happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, to that point, um, I figured they had a couple of, uh, real world characters, in the film but just looking at this list on uh on wikipedia i'm surprised how much like even though they had like one or two lines in the movie the amount of li- uh the amount of real people they had in this film is uh surprising to me yeah you you could tell this was a, a passion project for james cameron which it was but just like the level of detail like i'm sure there are aspects that are fictionalized but the overall like when you see particular things happen, most of that, if not all, is based on what, as far as we know, really happened. Like, you could tell, and and this is even conveyed through the framing device by his, you know, his self-insert character, <laughs> the, um, the guy who's running the expedition. Like, um, we kind of see him explore it through that guy, and that's kind of what we, we, the audience, learn a little bit more, I guess, about the... The discovery of the Titanic, which I do believe happened in the 90s, like the discovery of the actual physical wreck. Yeah, James Cameron got to work on this pretty shortly after. Yeah, the you could tell he was of... really inspired by it. Um, yeah, uh, he's a little bit of a nautical nerd. If you look at um, his filmography, uh, he did bum, Titanic, bum, 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 bum. then uh, Ghosts of the Abyss, then Aliens of the Deep. So we did Titanic and then two uh, deep sea exploration docks back to back. Yeah. Uh, which James Cameron's an interesting uh, director. If you look at his career, he started like his directorial debut was the uh, Piranha sequel, Piranha Two: The Spawning. Uh, then he <laughs> wow. has this whole era uh, of his career where he's doing things like Terminator, Aliens, T uh, Two, True Lies. Then he gets into his weird water phase with Titanic and the docks that I mentioned. <laughs> and now he's he seemingly face. hitched his wagon completely to Avatar. Which oh, honey. Yeah, uh, seems like a waste in my opinion, but, you know, far be it for me to tell James fucking Cameron. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> honestly, if he wants to play in that playground, uh, you know, good he's for him. him. He's, I yeah, mean, he's, he's, he's got a, a fairly large filmography. Yeah. He's done what he came here to do. So, like, if my man wants to spend his yes. latter directing years on a 
what some would call a mediocre passion project, then, <laughs> you know, far Just be it for me it. to tell him otherwise. It's a very yeah. pretty mediocre passion project. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, I still haven't seen the entirety of Avatar. Um, but I've seen, like, bits and pieces of it, but I haven't sat down and watched it. Which is funny because, honestly, not to give myself away or anything, but the, the overall concept of the story is something that I've been known to enjoy before, kind of embarrassingly. Like, everyone says it's Pocahontas in space, and I'm like, wow, that actually sounds pretty fun You haven't fun seen Avatar? <laughs> No. I wanted to read the book, but then I found out there wasn't there actually wasn't a book. A book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, something that, and I'm basing this on the incredibly small sample size of Avatar and Titanic because I don't know many of James Cameron's movies. Something that I can kind of respect that he seems to be into or able to do, I guess I should say, is sort of the large-scale, epic, grandiose movie that still centers on, like, a very human kind of, like, story. He is good at that. Like, a, a romance or what have you. I was about to say something about Transformers, but then I remembered that wasn't <laughs> James Cameron. Oh, no, I am not talking about Michael it Bay just, here. No. I, I hate to say it, like... But it feels like James Cameron could have directed Transformers, you know? Mm. Am, I, am I crazy for... No, I mean, he could have. It would have just been kind of different, I guess. <laughs> How? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, so let's see. Um, um, before we dive into specific notes, yep. the performances... Kate Winslet is fantastic in this. And you haven't seen that many Kate Winslet uh, movies. I'm pretty sure the only other Kate Winslet movie I've seen is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh yeah. Like 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> no, yes, the her there there's a reason people like wanted to see her and Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie together again, which they did in Revolutionary Road, actually, now that I think about it. Oh. They they <laughs> are the leads in that, which we need to talk about on here at some point. Um, Leo was okay. They're, they were really good. He yes. was pretty good. I feel like she kind of outshone him. She did. She was, she was bringing it. Like, yeah. he was bringing... 90s Leonardo DiCaprio, which just like kind of automatically kind of slides him in the door a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, yes. You can definitely tell, like, in his earlier movies that he's like acting with a capital A, like, like I am acting right now. Like, (laughs) which is what I've said about like Emma Watson and Daisy Ridley. They give me big, I'm acting right now energy, which is also what Leonardo DiCaprio is doing here, which to be fair, they are all very young in these roles that I'm talking about, including uh, DiCaprio. So it's not like you expect them to right. be fully out of that phase. But they do play very well off each other. Right, and their the, chemistry is great. Kate Winslet shines the most, I think, when she is playing off of him. Mm-hmm. Yes, and they their scenes together are just really good. They have actual dialogue. It feels and, like there's actual chemistry together. Right. Like, oh, look, these two are just kids. They should be together. No, yeah. As it's... opposed to, like, all the scenes with her and Caledon, and you're like, eh, what? Oh, no. Man, this uh, guy. Just speaking of her acting, uh, the scene where he uh, loses her, uh, his shit on her and flips the table and everything, uh, <laughs> when she yep. starts cleaning up the glass, uh, uh, helping the, uh, the crew member... Yes. Uh, I was like, that is so painful and real to watch. I, I feel like I've seen that yes. happen in real life before, and it's just, ugh. Oh, right, yeah. Like, that moment after something horrible has happened, but you have to, like, snap back to, like, real life and, and keep functioning and trying to be polite. And, yeah. and, she just, ouch. my God, her acting in this movie. Yeah. 
no, it was really good. Which is good because Rose really is the protagonist. Like, Jack sort of is in, like, he has his point of view parts, too. But, like, she's the one that, like, the framing device does still kind of center around her. Like... I think that's a good segue, Stephanie. Yeah. I think Stephanie and I both made the same note. (laughs) What is the purpose of the framing device? Okay, I think, yes, because I the wrote first, that too. There is a purpose, though, I think. The first solid chunk of the movie, I don't know how much. It's a 20-something minute. It's all in the modern day. Yeah. Dudes in submarines looking for a big diamond in the wreck of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. They find some drawings, and old lady shows up and is like, that's me. And she basically, she some of the guys are skeptical, and then she like starts to tell her story. And there is probably like five different moments where I expect a transition to happen to the past. And then when it finally does, you're like, there it is. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, it's up front. It doesn't seem to serve much of a purpose at all. But what Justin said at the very beginning made me realize something. Hmm. Justin pointed out that having the framing device is what allows the story to not end in tragedy. Because if we just end with her being rescued in the lifeboat while 1,500 people around her uh, died, um, then, you know, that's not a a great ending to a movie, to a story. Not to a story like that. Cutting later and allowing her to have resolution and closure is a good ending, you know? So, in that sense, I understand the purpose of the frame framing device, and I'm glad Justin said that. And it feels like it was reverse-engineered, almost. Like, James Cameron wrote yeah. most of the story and was like, I can't end the movie like this. <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. And it also, it, it serves kind of the, the reverse purpose in the beginning, um, because, I mean, maybe I'm just a morbid... <laughs> person but uh when they're exploring the wreckage and everything it's like oh every character i'm about to see 90 percent of them are going to be at the bottom of the ocean by the time the credits roll on this it it was just like so the entire movie that sense of dread is just yes um yeah oh that's also a good point and to to add a third thing um I almost feel like it's a little bit of a meta commentary on the act of making a film like this about something that really happened. The film about let making me... movies about making movies. <laughs> well, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> so the guys who are looking for, I guess, presumably the diamond uh, in the wreckage of the Titanic, they are viewing it very much as, I, I don't know, just an expedition. They, right, they're they treasure hunters. Right. They aren't really... They're thinking of, oh, wow, this massive, like, ship full of wealthy people went down. Like, what can we grab from this? And they aren't really thinking about the extremely painfully human side of what happened. If this were national treasure, this would be, like, <laughs> Ian's point of view versus yeah. ben- Benjamin Gates's point of view, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Ian is like, where's the treasure? And Ben is like... Let's just pause for a moment <laughs> and reflect. About this is the last time this America. piece of paper was in this room, yeah, yes. it was being signed. Right. And it's like, and in in a sense, I get the, the sense that, especially with the blonde guy being sort of James Cameron's point of view character here, like, 
it's almost like he's pointing out to the audience <laughs> or he's maybe pointing out to himself like yes we are making a big bombastic hollywood movie about this thing that happened but we haven't forgotten that this happened to real people right like and we a few of whom could possibly especially if they were children be alive today it is it can be easy to it can be easy if not necessary for some people to disassociate yourselves from the tragedy right i know if i were exploring a shipwreck I would have to take an archaeological perspective from it to it right. and uh, to just not be depressed as hell the yeah. entire time I was well, doing right, it. Exactly. So it's, it's, I guess it's about trying to tell the audience that there's a balance that like, don't be like this guy who is completely disassociated, you know, to the, he only cares about finding this giant diamond that belonged to the King of France for hundreds of years. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, we have to bring in this other person, this this connection to the wreck. A survivor. A survivor. This this actual tangible connection to it to remind you of the humanity of it, you know. Um, yes, I think that is probably the primary purpose is to, to literalize the balancing of, uh, I don't know, represent, representing the physical aspects of what happened. Right. And, like, look at the ship go down. Isn't that crazy and cinematic? But also being, like, there there are people and it's really their story because that that's always the story. Right. I'm, I'm glad we discussed this because the, when I, we first started it, my question was, what is the purpose of this framing device? And now here I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's important to prime the audience. Yeah. To be in the right mindset because at this point you know most of the audience's experience with it was probably watching history channel documentaries which we all love yeah don't get me wrong everyone <laughs> if you say you don't you're a liar everyone <laughs> loves a good history channel documentary about the titanic okay so it's the yes. framing device is important because it makes it personal again when people right. have been trying to disassociate from this for yeah. years because it's fascinating as the moment in history it is just mesmerizing and right. you want to learn more about it like who knows how many people have read the entirety of the wikipedia article on the rec the sinking of the titanic but it, it it's acknowledging that and also saying hey but we got to bring it back to this personal level it's also not to skip way forward till the end of the movie <laughs> But in a way, it it makes it, it adds a nice ending to it because there's that moment like right before Jack bites it, you know, um, where he tells Rose like, you're going to live, you're going to like get married and have lots of babies and like you're going to live to be super old and die warm in your bed. And it's almost like she feels that she needs to keep that promise to him. To, to sort of keep him alive in that way. And so she does do that. And that's what makes it feel so hopeful, kind of, is that, like, yeah. it feels like he didn't die for nothing. And it feels like that it, as long as some people made it out, it feels like it keeps it from being a completely bleak ending, which yeah. it could have been. <laughs> but I want to touch on their relationship for just a second. Mm. The fact that her own... Husband or husbands? I think husband. Husband didn't didn't know the fact. Her and that Jack's was wild to me. I was like, 
I can't imagine, like, being married to Caleb, if something like that had happened to me, I would have just gotten drunk one night and been like, here's the whole thing. Like, <laughs> but I guess people had different relationships in the early 1900s. What do I know? Yes. I, I was just going to say the, the concept of the, the fact that they had such an intense and short and intimate relationship that she, I suppose, couldn't replicate you know um it's especially when when you're so young and you feel things so intensely you know um that she never told her husband probably because she was worried he would be jealous yeah you know um (laughs) hard to beat that huh which speaking of which like at the end uh when she passes away and then uh her however you want to read it uh her spirit is reunited <laughs> with Jack. Right. I'm like, her husband's her husband. in heaven. Like, what the fuck? I know. <laughs> I, I thought about that, too. I was like, I'm really happy for her. My girl went to heaven, and she saw all the people that went down on the ship or died after or died before her. And they're like, it's good to see you again, Rose. And she's reunited with this person that she had this intense, intense connection with. And then you just have to wonder, like, where's her husband up in heaven <laughs> waiting for his wife no, to eventually show no, up? No, he's in the room waiting to have a three-way with Jack and Rose. I, you know what? That's the best read. <laughs> That's the best read. He didn't really feel comfortable getting all dressed up for that occasion, but he was in there in his best boxers. Yeah, he's in there. He might be doing it, but he knows. He, he's He's thinking the entire time that she feels more strongly about Jack than she does about him. See, but I don't know. I didn't necessarily... I totally get what you're saying. I didn't necessarily read it that way. I guess I read it more as, like, kind of the closing of that. Like, whether or not she actually died there, which I do think it's meant to be ambiguous, not really direct that she dies there. I think we're supposed to, like... It's not... That's not what matters. What matters is a chapter has closed. Mm -hmm. Like... And to me, that represents the closing of that chapter. Like, when she drops the diamond into the ocean, she tells her story, which she never told to anyone. That allows her to, like, resolve that, and it no longer feels like something that she had to keep a secret, and that allows her to feel closer to him. To me, it's not so much that she forgot about her husband and or whatever. It's that she felt closer to him, and she felt reunited with that experience through the telling of the story. So she, she could have been dreaming for all we know. Right. I don't think it's supposed to... I don't think it's clear that she dies. She could have just as well been asleep, and I think that's kind of the point. I think it's an intentional implication, but I also think you're right in that it doesn't explicitly yes. say. It's it's the closing of something, the ending of something, and that feels deliberate to me. Um, uh, that, that event made her immortal, and she outlives them all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. Jack actually cursed her with immortality without knowing it. <laughs> She's still somewhere today. Um, no, no, no. But but yeah, so I thought that was a good ending. It was very, it felt very resolved, which is something that I one teared wants. Up. I know. Oh, me too. I, the way I cry, every time I watch this movie, I cry earlier and earlier. <laughs> like, you know yeah. I know. This time, I think the tears started whenever the they started playing Nearer My God to Thee, and I was like, yep, here we go. <laughs> Just like. It's going to like a whole. Point. I know, I know. And when they showed the montage of like the people, oh gosh, like the old people lying in the bed, like as oh the no, water that, I don't like that like, shot. Nope, I don't nope. like that shot at all. Crying. It's gonna get to the point to where as soon as the robot uh, grabs the photo underwater, <laughs> Stephanie's gonna lose it. 
<laughs> Justin, <laughs> I just spit vodka cran everywhere. That shit made her snarf, yo. I literally, I was imagining the robot, and I just. <laughs> I have never seen Stephanie do this before. Stop. We're cutting that. It's everywhere. We're cutting that. We're not no. cutting that. No. <laughs> the shit made me snarf, yo. <laughs> Oh okay, stop. God. Stop. No. I'm already too emotional. I can't add laughter to the other emotions. Oh my god. Okay. Fortunately, I did not choke on that vodka crayon. I just kind of <laughs> snarked. Just take a moment. Just take a moment. Okay. All right. Do we want to get actually like into the actual yes. like meat of the story? We'll address sure. our now that notes. we've addressed all the big stuff. We've addressed a lot of stuff, yeah. so you know it's all downhill from here. Yeah. <laughs> Just like the Titanic effort. Anyway, oh, I was resisting it. No. <laughs> I was resisting it. Stephanie, are you uh, are you are you what? good to take us through notes? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so. <laughs> all right, all right. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. So, yes, anyway, Rose and her family uh, board the Titanic. I noticed they were doing health inspections, which I was a little fascinated by. I was like, that makes sense in, like, the post-COVID era, but I didn't know they were doing that all the way back in, like, what was this, like, 1912? Yeah, they were um, specifically uh, combing through his hair. I imagine lice. lice would have been a huge yes. issue back then. So. <laughs> Oof, goodness knows they already had rats. Um, let's see. Um, so... <laughs> We might as well talk about Billy Zane. Um, He's a pretty cool guy. Uh, <laughs> so I, this is this is not the second, maybe the third. I can't remember the second one. I've not seen Billy Zane in very many things, but every time I see yeah. him, the only thing I can think of is that scene in Zoolander, where, <laughs> where, where um, oh my god, who's the blonde guy? Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson says, listen to your buddy Billy Zane. He's a pretty cool guy. <laughs> That's all I can ever think I mean, of Billy when I Zane see him. Billy Zane is a cool name, but it also sounds like a porn name. It is a cool me. name. I think he sounds like a rock star. Oh, okay. I was always I was surprised when I found out he wasn't like a famous guitarist in oh a rock God. band. No, I, I don't like this character. In fact, this character is the only real problem I have with the movie. And when I say I don't like him, I I know he's supposed supposed to be unlikable. I don't mean in that way. He is cartoonishly. I, yes, I mean evil. that he is too cartoonish. Like even for the movie, like the movie's supposed to be pretty clear cut, but it's too it's too much with him. What, Justin? Sorry. Uh, just anytime he opened his damn mouth, uh, <laughs> Heather was watching it with me, and we would both just. It's, He's so monocle and mustache, it's, even though he doesn't have either of those things. He, they should have given him, like, one or two or maybe even three, given the length of the movie, scenes to ground him and make him seem, like, yes. not like I said, cartoonish, because at every opportunity, he's just the worst. And then by the time... So so you already hate him. He's already been the worst at every possible moment. But then by the time he grabs that little girl to, like, s- steal his way onto a life raft, that's when he crosses over into cartoonish, and you're just like, yeah. what? Well, Do because, we did we need this? We already hate him. The first time I saw the movie, when he picked up the little girl, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. We're actually adding a little bit of nuance. Like, he's a total dick and, like, completely deserves whatever comes to him, but he's not such a monster that he's going to leave a child to die alone. Like, uh. and then <laughs> he's just grabbing the child because so he can con his way onto a boat. And it's yeah. like, I, I felt like 
it was too much. Like, they should have just given him, like, one or two humanizing moments, either that or just cut back just a little bit on all the the poor people stuff. Like... So just, just while we're on uh, the topic of Cal, uh, I want you guys to picture both of these things. Uh, the role <laughs> okay. of Cal was originally offered to Matthew McConaughey. What? Uh, that would have been awesome. Well, I'm sorry, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> just uh, walking up to the Titanic, all right, all right, all no. right. No, <laughs> oh my god, I'm imagining Matthew McConaughey trying to play like a posh, hoity-toity British man, the way Billy no, Zane is here. Look. You understand what I'm saying, man? Oh my god. <laughs> uh, I, I get honestly... older and they... Oh no, don't even! <laughs> actually... He didn't get older. He killed himself in the Great Depression. That's true. He only got about <laughs> 10 years older. Uh, uh, maybe a little older than that. 20 and, years. And uh, uh, Rob Lowe also went for the role. What? <laughs> <laughs> Rob. Amazing. Okay, I feel like either of those portrayals would have been more likable than this one. I'm trying to go to IMDb, but there's um, Vodka Crayon on my phone. Sorry! <laughs> Just I inhaled. I inhaled the dark and stormy. My God, to my I'm, I'm just imagining Rob Lowe going, "Rose to cater." Oh <laughs> you are this literally is, the only person I want to see right now. This is literally the most unsinkable ship. <laughs> I put the diamond in the coat, and I put the coat on her. <laughs> Over here. <laughs> Justin, you shouldn't have said anything. Damn you and your fun facts. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious, though. Oh my god. That is literally, that is literally hilarious. <laughs> Stop. When, yeah. Sinking. Stop. Pooping. <laughs> Justin, that is... Oh, that was so good. Okay. We need to catch our breath and move on. Okay, okay. No, okay, can we talk about the way they plucked his eyebrows, though? I was like, this is like Rachel Wise in the mummy level eyebrow plucking. It makes him look even douchier. Um, it's pretty bad. Anyway, so Billy Zane, all I'm saying is that they're clearly trying to make him look much less preferable than Jack. From Rose's perspective. But what I'm saying is, it's not that hard to look like the worst option to 90s Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) Like, that is not hard. You literally just have to set any man, like, next to him, and he will look like the less preferable option. Like, oh, yeah, obviously a 17-year-old girl would prefer 90s Leonardo DiCaprio. They didn't have to be so extreme with him. Like, I get... He and her mom, more than anyone else, kind of represent what she is running away from as fast as she and can. they are both despicable at every possible Oh, yeah, the mom, too. They literally give her, like, one scene where she's allowed to be kind of, like, vulnerable for, like, a split second. And you can kind of tell that she's genuinely afraid that they might lose everything and, like become poverty stricken and stuff like that's understandable but like every other thing it's so cartoonish like she might as well be floating around being like oh the poor people oh they smell and like just just uh it's it's a lot um and i get it though in so much as you're looking at it from rose's perspective i will say they are supposed to seem rather extreme because that's how she saw them she was like 
they were representative of what she did not want for her life or what she was sick of seeing. So, and that's also the purpose of that part where she sees the little girl folding the napkin in her lap, like, very dutifully. And she's like, oh, woof, that's me. Like, we've been programmed. <laughs> and <laughs> Open your eyes, sheeple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah, she sees herself in that little girl. She's like, oh, that little girl's headed for the same place that I am. I want out. Like, it's fun. But <laughs> it's so cartoonish. It's It's a lot. But that's okay. So, of course, being me, I love a great classism is bad and uh, rich people suck movie, Um, which is kind of what this is. I mean, it's very much what this is. Like, that is pretty consistently reinforced. Like, and it's interesting because this experience, like, in a rosier world, perhaps would have been a great equalizer. Like, people going through this tragedy together, rich and poor alike, you know, um, <laughs> all coming together to try to survive. And yet, this, the movie shows what I can only assume is pretty accurate, uh, is that that was not so much the case, not, not, not for most people. And that uh, most of the people that survived, well, first of all, were, were women and children, um, which is good, I guess. Like that—that's—that's that's a nobler side of humanity. Second part being that most of them were people of upper classes. Less good, right? And that the movie literally locks the lower classes down in that their... was dark. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, especially since the movie like doesn't even spare us seeing like the Irish lady like with their two ch- with her two children Mm-mm. in the room like Mm-mm. like cuz they can't get out like <laughs> yeah just I know. The, that the, was the dark. scene when the dude has like a the 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 crew member has a gun pointed at them I'm like first off you you're not getting I was going to say, who shills this hard? Right. For the people who shills that, like, this hard? God, like, there's, there's no way you're getting paid enough right to care now. about no. this. Um, what a douchebag. I know. Um, like, you could not pay me to my care. My second thought is, look at the way those bars are bending. They could totally break that down. <laughs> yeah. You got to throw your body up on the gears. <laughs> What's the line? The wheels. Upon all the apparatus and you got to make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh... uh indicate to the people that run it and the people who own it that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. <laughs> Which I guess is what happens. <laughs> the machine was prevented from yes, working, but not because of the... Prevented. But not because of the proletariat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had a little more to lose than their chains, it turns out. Okay. Whew, ah. That's enough. That's, that's enough of that. Um, yes. And... Uh, and that feels like a very deliberate theme of the movie in that Jack and Rose are from such separate stratifications of class. And, you know, that's why she's not supposed to be with him is because, I mean, he might look like Leonardo DiCaprio, but he, you know, he's still, I guess, white he's trash. He's a poor in guy who bums rides. The only yeah. reason he has a ticket for the ship is because he won a game of poker. Right, which is a little funny that <laughs> the Swedish guy was so mad that he lost, but he probably would have died. Yeah, he probably his saved friends his own almost life certainly by did. losing. Yes. Um, yeah, his friend that he beat the shit out of saved his life. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> let's let's talk about the dinner scene for a moment. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, I had a, literally had you a note, a note about of that. The dinner scene? Love a tense dinner conversation. I swear that's a thing in mm. every like historical mm. movie, especially set between because like the 1800s and like it's, 1900s. It's <laughs> it's like a it's a miniature um, bottle episode. Mm, it's mm. It's wall-to-wall nuance and facial expression, as Abed <laughs> would say. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an example for the writing to really shine. It's a moment for the guy writing the screenplay to be like, to crack his knuckles yeah, and yeah. be like, all right, <laughs> Here we you go. guys want some dialogue? I'll write you some dialogue. And it's great because it illustrates all the different like kind of classifications that these people are in like you have the snooty rich people like Cal and Rose's mom you have Rose who's one of the rich people but like kind of is beginning to hate them you have Molly Brown who is the nouveau, nouveau riche. riche right so she's kind of in but kind of not and then you have Jack who is basically not in and only happens to be in because as far as they know well which is true more or less they don't know the whole story but as far as they know he saved the rich ladies so he's valuable to that extent right so set up here rose after the scene with the little girl i think i could be wrong rose realizes she doesn't want to live this life she would rather probably rather die than marry cal and be committed to this role for the rest of her life yes. and she goes to the back of the ship to throw herself off and kill herself and Jack sees her and manages to talk her out of it slash save her because he she... literally guilts her out of it. It's pretty funny. He, he guilts her out of it. And <laughs> that would the... work on me. I got to say. And like... she slips and he also has to actually rescue her. Save her. Um, I mean, she says that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. <laughs> so d- it doesn't stop there. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> So after there's a slight confusion, blah, 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 he was seen on top of her. They're like, what are you doing to the rich lady? And she's like, he saved my life. Um, and they're like, okay, you can come to one, count them, one we, dinner. No, first they're <laughs> yeah. like, you can have a $20. Right, they literally um, tried to toss some money at it. <laughs> which I don't know what $20 was in 1912. It was probably, probably like a 100 bucks. Yeah. I don't, I'm not Googling this yeah. right now, okay? Um, and then Rose is like, is that all for the man who saved my life? That's a pretty good point. She's like, oh, is that the price for, for saving the woman you love? And she uh, kind of yeah, right. shames him a little bit. He's um, like, fine, he can come because, to dinner. Right, she was about to throw herself <laughs> off the back of the ship. The ship. So she's like, you know what? She's grown, She's got some balls at this point. She's like, I'm a flex know, a little I bit. I I love her <laughs> um, at this point. <laughs> she's like, y'all mind if I... And, um, so Cal is like... And invites him to dinner. Um, (laughs) And then, God bless her, Molly. What's Molly Brown? Molly Brown, yes. Molly Brown gives him a suit and everything. Played delightfully by, oh God, what's her name? Kathy Bates. Yes, Kathy Bates, the excellent (laughs) character actress who, God. She deserves a movie of her own. She has played supporting characters in so many movies at this point. Can you name another one for me? Well, Misery is one she's super. Famous uh, for well, it when she was a little younger. Um, uh, Waterboy, she's in that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Waterboy, or do you just know no, that? No, I just know she's in it. That's what I thought. Uh, her character, she she's like in one season of The Office, and her character is basically a, a modern version of... Uh, this exact character. Yeah. <laughs> she's anyway, in a ton she's, of stuff. She's, she's a doll. Really good. Yeah. So she's rich. So in 
one aspect she is allowed into the social circles of the other rich people but she doesn't buy into their bullshit because she's not old money right um and so she's like you know what jack she's like you don't know what you're getting into but you're a nice boy <laughs> so i'm gonna give you my son's tuxedo yes she helps and him make out, you dress up nice good. and then uh, he yes justin no, continue what you were going to say. Okay. He, I love this scene because he doesn't take any bullshit from any of them. Nah, he's on it. Good for right, him. Right, so they're sitting at this dinner table, and it's, it's, it's like 20 people or something, and they're all basically interrogating him, and he is just able to just turn it around on them every time. Cal is trying to undermine him, and... Um, Rose's mom is trying to humiliate him and he just does not buy into it um, and then in the at one point you know he literally even like throws a pack of matches at Cal to, so he can light a cigarette you know getting the uh, getting an upper hand on him mm-hmm. um, I don't and you can you can tell the entire time that Rose is just so nervous that Jack is gonna screw it up and they're gonna be like security uh, there's a poor man here <laughs> He didn't use the right fork for his salad. Please yeah. escort him out. Right. Um, but he, you know, gets through it. And you can tell that this man is a professional bullshitter. Yeah. <laughs> He's like his character in Catch Me If You Can, which Caleb hasn't seen, I, but he no, should see because I think he would like it, which is also Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, but yes. No, I. that's what I love about old-timey dinner scenes in movies is that they're always like rich people being snotty and and snarking at each other which is so fun because like Caleb <laughs> said it's like wall-to-wall expression and emotional nuance um plus if you've if you've been listening to us uh for any amount of time you know we are all bitches for the heroes and villains sitting down and having a chat (laughs) absolutely i love that just inject it straight into my veins i could eat it up just with a spoon just nom 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 nom. (laughs) love it (laughs) exactly and it's great because when they can talk to each other that's when the character comes out and it's like Especially I love a movie where the heroes and villains or whoever sit down and talk to each other civilly and then later have to talk to each other under much more stressful circumstances. And you can can kind of compare and contrast those. I guess I'm thinking of when Jack speaks to Cal Cal later on. And he's like, you're a great liar. And he's like, almost as great as you. And it's like, oh, Oh, they both knew that whole time. That's a great moment, too. So Jack... For context, if you haven't seen Titanic, but you're still 45 minutes or an hour into this podcast, (laughs) when the ship is sinking, Cal and Cal is Rose's fiance, and uh, which I don't know if we've even explicitly stated that. We probably have. Cal and Jack are both convincing Rose to get on a lifeboat, which she promptly jumps off of. Um, Good for her. My bitch said, I'll do anything for love. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... Cal says to her, I have a man on the other side who will guarantee me a spot on the, me a spot on the lifeboat, and Jack will have a spot as well. And she gets on the lifeboat, and she gets lowered down, and that's when Cal says, you're a pretty good liar. Right, because Jack played along with it, because he knew that Cal was bullshitting, but he yep, wanted Rose to live. Knew, so. Right. He knew that there wasn't a spot for him on the lifeboat, but he went along with it because it took that for them to convince Rose to get on the lifeboat. 
all for naught, but... Yeah, <laughs> and honestly, if I was Cal, I would be like, oh, she was only willing to save her own life if she thought that this other guy was going to live. Maybe I should just break right. things off now. Right, okay, two thoughts. <laughs> two thoughts here. One, I love a moment when the hero and the villain just fully understand each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, I, the good I stuff. love it. That is the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, <laughs> if I were Cal... And I had my hired man um, tie this dude up in the lowest deck of the ship. Um, and my fiance was willing to die to save this man rather than marry me. Ouch. I would just take the L. <laughs> yeah, just okay? Take the L. <laughs> <Come> on. <laughs> just, just, like, he couldn't find a rich woman to marry him who also liked him. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. there is. There would be plenty of women yeah. in, where were they going to, Boston or Philadelphia yeah, or something? as if there wouldn't be, be any number of rich debutantes who would debutantes. actually like him exactly. as a person and have a lot of money. Yes. The moment... Ego, man. It'll uh, kill it, you. It, no, it really is. It he wants to possess her, and so he can't give... I mean, that is what it comes down to. Right. Like, I, can, I can say all that I want. The fact of the matter is I don't have the ego that this man possesses. That some it's hard people to do possess. To. Yeah. Some people really do yeah. Have the the feeling of like you know if I can't have you no one can right I don't even um, like you but I just need to have you because uh, you're a shiny jewel I guess right like... and just because I can't relate to well, it does Jack, not mean that it doesn't Jack exist. is contrasted with that because when he he tells her that she needs to live and he knows that she's not going to live like with him he knows he's not going to be a part of that he knows that he's not going to marry her and he's not going to be the father of her children but he still wants her to have a life apart from him so that's like the whole thing that contrasts him with the people that she was trying to get away from is that like that even if they didn't like her they still needed to control her and he he is the only one willing to one not control her and to give up something from himself right so that she could be free and that's why this movie's so romantic because it's it's not just a man obsessing over a woman it's a man actually wanting a woman to have her own life like even if it's independent of him let's talk about jack for a sec i this comes up a lot in the dinner conversation he is very much he he he's a traveling man he's a hitchhiker he you know goes where the wind takes him um he, you know he winds up somewhere finds himself a temporary job until he can you know get a ride to the next town over um he it is very obvious from the dinner conversation that he has lived much more of a life than most of these people sitting at the table have lived regardless of their money you know they're not living he himself he he was in a whole spiel that like he makes some of them it seems realize like you got a point, young man. You know to the point that he gets a here here. You know. Yeah, that's true. He does get a here here. Good for my man. And there's something about his perspective from his partially from his class. You know, being being lower class. It's it's about the freedom. He nobody understands freedom quite like he does. The rich people think that they have freedom because they have money, which having money does allow you. We all know allows you a certain amount of freedom that is unaccessible to poor people. One must think it was probably more constraining. But the fact, but he not having money is much more. He he lives on the breeze. Right, he doesn't have to pretend to be anything. He has to learn how to how to adapt, how to help himself, how to change, how to grow, how to 
you know, go from place to place. It's mm-hmm. his pers- particular perspective is important. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's what Rose needs because she's constrained by that very and I noticed this in in movies a lot of times it's like being lower class for men is like the worst place you can be because it prevents you from like achieving all that you want to achieve with which is sort of coded as a very masculine thing like ambition and and moving yourself up in the world whereas being upper class for women a lot of times in storytelling seems to be coded as the most constraining thing because your your imprisonment then is to your relationships with other people and like to these particular nuanced duties that you have to fulfill so that you you have to for instance marry someone that you don't love which is then considered the worst fate for a woman which i guess it could have been because i mean you know you might be forced to do a lot of things that you didn't want to do like yeah. um the next move we were talking about boy does that get into that yes exactly <laughs> right so it's like you know nowadays when when i suppose gender equality is far from completely here but is a little more balanced we are more acknowledging of like being lower class is pretty much a, a shitty fate for anyone but like in ye olden days it could be at least in film portrayed as if you're a woman born into that kind of situation, you are basically just a pawn to be used on a chessboard. Like, and, and that is almost a worse fate than being a poor man is being a rich woman. Who's just, because at least the poor man has his own freedom. He can make his own decisions. Yeah. If you're a rich woman, all of your decisions are made for you. Right. By people who are pretty much just trying to use you. Mm. And that's kind of the thing. Like, they're both constrained. And we do see that. Like, Jack is constrained, too, because of his class. But and they each have their freedoms. And they, like, for instance, Rose can curry favor with the people around her in a way that Jack can't because she's a beautiful, rich woman. Like, there are people who will listen to her and try to protect her in ways that they wouldn't with a lower class person. But also she lacks the freedom that Jack has and that she can't move the way that he can. Yeah. So, anyway, long yeah. tangent there. <laughs> no, uh, just just continuing the tangent. Uh, uh, it, I would say Rose, uh, even more so, way more so than Jack, um, is constrained. The only time we really see Jack uh, being held back because of his position um, is because he falls in love uh, with someone of a higher class than him. Other than right. that... He's traveling the world. He's an artist. He's going to Fran- uh, France, sleeping with French women. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good for him. He's, like, he's having. He loves his life. Yes. Um, and meanwhile, Rose, who has monetarily and uh, uh, oh god, what's the word I'm looking for? Materialistically, yeah, uh, <laughs> has everything anyone in that time period could want. She it, it just hates everything about it (laughs) and that's what's sort of so beautiful about it is that he having tasted that freedom knows how important it is and and wants her to have that like he he has experienced that and he knows how valuable it is to being a person you know to being able to create your own life and and he doesn't talk about it a lot but you do get that sense that he what was really important to him was being able to make his own choices and choose his own path. And he recognizes that she wants that too and wants to give that to her. And like, that's what's so great about their relationship is that 
you know, like they, they both want that kind of freedom. And in the end, he is able to give her that because <laughs> once she gets out, of, when she's uh, rescued from the water, she's like, yeah, goodbye. <laughs> and she doesn't, she doesn't, <laughs> she literally hides herself from, um, from Cal when he goes looking for her. She's like, I'm literally never going back to that. And that's kind of her liberation mm-hmm. <laughs> as terrible it, as it is. Well, she, uh, she takes, uh, Jack's last name, uh, stateside, and (laughs) uh, we're, we're to assume that she never even, like, makes contact with her mother or anything. I know, that was the only thing that I was kind of like, ooh, that's a little sad, like, it's somehow even sadder if her mother knows that she survived and is just no longer speaking to her than it is if her mother thinks that she died, (laughs) like, oof. (laughs) It's 7 out of 1,500. The odds were good that she probably assumed her daughter died. Yes, that's true, yeah. and the internet wasn't a thing, so... Which, um, just to pause for a moment. Yes, yeah. Jesus it's, Christ, yeah. that number... Is the number horrifying. given is that 1,500 souls went into the water, and yeah. seven of them were recovered by a single lifeboat, one lifeboat out of 20 returned to look for survivors yes several hours later like it took convincing apparently yeah that scene was so sad when like molly was talking to other people she was like those are your men out there and they're all just like sitting there and And the guy was like i will literally shoot you yeah (laughs) and she's trying so hard like it's really heartbreaking um, I was, I was, last night I was watching the Lindsay Ellis video on the movie Titanic, uh, which we need to link. Yeah. It's a good video and, and makes a good argument for why this movie is so good. But, uh, she was talking about how, like, one of the reasons the Titanic has kind of gone down in history is such, like, something that we remember is that it actually wasn't that common for women and children to be saved in these numbers from shipwrecks, which is really dark to, like, say. But she talked about another shipwreck where there were a lot of women and children on board, and literally every woman on board died, and, like, one child survived. And, like, because they didn't prioritize them the way that the Titanic did. It was, like understandably more women and children would die because they wouldn't be as accustomed to like being at sea and like those survival skills. And so unfortunately in that case, when the ship went down, there was not a concerted effort to make sure that the more vulnerable populations made it out. Mm -hmm. Like, and so a lot of men survived, but not a lot of women and children. And in the case of the Titanic, I think that has kind of gone down in our cultural consciousness as, in a way, sort of an example of, like, the nobility that that humans are capable of. And that, like, in a an extreme situation like this, like, it wasn't, like, a rule that women and children would be put on the life, lifeboats first. It was just, that was, they were like, okay, well, we, they came up with it on the fly, essentially. They were like, well okay, there's, like, 2,000-something people on board. We have to save some people, but not everyone's going to be saved. So so they made a decision, essentially, like a, a democratic decision, I guess, to put these people first. And that's kind of why we remember it as kind of an example of people making a good choice, I guess, in a a horrifying scenario. And, of course, that's not to get into the actual distinctions of, like, there were lower class people and people of color and stuff that were not prioritized. 
but in so much as <laughs> they were willing to <laughs> acknowledge, like, um, they actually did manage to save a lot of the more vulnerable people that were aboard. Um, of course, the unfortunate side of that that we do see in the movie is that if you were a man who was not super rich and not part of the crew, like, chances were that you would not get a spot on the lifeboats, like... Right, like, Mr. Astor, one of the richest men in America, died with... went down with the ship. Yeah, right, and the captain, too, and, like, like, so... (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the sad part of it. And, and that's kind of why you know that Jack won't survive, because... Sorry, Justin, yeah. what were you saying? Uh, no, I was just going to say I love uh, the final scenes um, with uh, uh, Thomas Andrews as he's just sitting at the fire, or standing at the fireplace. Uh, oh, yeah. Reflecting on what's going on. Such great acting by Victor Garber there. Oh, yeah. Um, he's always so great. Like, <laughs> another actor who is, like, always, like, a character actor and never is, like, the main character, but always is, like, giving it 110% whenever yes. he's, like, a side character. Yes. yes. And, oh, like, when he says, like, I'm sorry I didn't build you a stronger ship, Miss oh, Rose. No. Like, it's like, oh, oh. No. With his Irish accent. I know. I'm sorry I didn't build you a stronger ship, Miss Rose. And then when he sets, the, when he, like, stops the clock, and I'm like, oh. He, oh, he no. fully knows what's about to happen. It's so sad. Uh, right, and this God, movie is so me. good with the those engineer goes moments. down with the ship. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, uh, the captain goes down with the ship. Uh, the douchebag who told uh, the captain to go faster. Yeah. I love the scene where he gets on the lifeboat and you can see that he regrets yep. his decision, yep. but he's like made it. Closing his eyes, uh, yep. Uh, Hoping he doesn't get noticed or called out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, speaking of speaking of Irish, uh, we kind of skipped over because we we're just like uh, jumping all over the place. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yes, we are. Ja- Jack's friends uh, <laughs> on the lower class part of the ship. I love Fabrizio and Tommy so much. They they have like two scenes each. I know. Uh, but they're great, and uh, Tommy did not deserve what he got. I'm glad oh. that cop killed himself. Yep. No, I I like Tommy. My f- only thought towards Fabrizio was who the fuck is this guy? I, my, I, he's, he's in the first couple scenes and then I was like, I know nothing about this guy from my cultural osmosis, so I can only assume he disappears as soon as Rose shows up and guess what? I was right. <laughs> and then he only shows up at the very end to die a horrible death yeah. crushed by yeah. the, the smoke That pipe. was bleak. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's the kind of sad thing, too, is, like, even while we're talking about, like, oh, it's so noble that they let the women and children go first, it's also kind of, you can't blame the, like, the the poorer, like, men for, they don't know what's going on, because no one's fucking telling them, because no one cares about whether they live or die. Like, trying to, like, storm their way onto one of the lifeboats, like, you can't really blame them. In the same way that you can't, I guess you can't really blame the guy who has the gun and is like, no one's getting on here or I'll shoot. Like, in his mind, he knows that he's trying to save the women and children, but those guys don't know that. All they know is that they're they're being kept from their only way of survival, which is not that surprising given how the class stratification works. It's just tragic all around. Um, Yeah, so anyway... (laughs) Do we have any more notes we feel we must touch upon? Um, I 
Uh, well, okay, I'll go ahead and go. Um, I thought that um, some of the best moments for this movie are the moments in between when it's definitely, like, clear that the ship is sinking and when it actually sinks. Because you see, in horrifying, beautiful detail, like, the way people respond to this kind of crisis... Um, like we talked about before, the way I start fucking crying whenever, <laughs> whenever, oh my god, okay, so the moment when the, the violinist guy who's by himself because he dismissed the other guys, he starts playing the violin by himself, and then one uh. by one, all the other musicians come back and start playing with it, that's where the, that's where the tears come, <laughs> that's where I start fucking crying, um, and, um, and you see, all these different types of people, like, and the way they're trying to respond to this crisis. Like, another part that gets me is when, like, the the priest is, like, is, like, reciting scripture. And it's almost this, like, like a renaissance painting. Like, people, even as the ship tilts, like, clinging onto him, like, physically. And, like, like kneeling in front of him and, like, trying to hear, <laughs> like, the, the words. Um, like, even as the ship, like, is sinking farther and farther down. Like literally physically clinging to, to like the hope uh, that that represents. Some of the, some of the shots that affected me the most were the the wide shots, the yeah. distance shots because it really struck me like, how. Can you imagine seeing, this thing, something this large doing this unnatural movement, you know, the, 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 an, an entire half of this massive ship rising out of the water in this totally unnatural way. I can't comprehend visualizing that in person. Something that huge. Yeah. And all the while bodies are falling from it. Oh yeah. That's the worst part. Like every few seconds in the wide shots, just like another body would fall and you wouldn't even know why you wouldn't know if they jumped or if they fell or like, who knows what happened. It was just, just like one after another. So it it should be said that some of the things that happen uh, as the ship is sinking uh, gets a visceral reaction out of me in ways that like horror movies don't get. Yeah. Uh, Just the way people, like, when that guy hits the blades of the ship and the guy who hits the rails, I, like, I can watch somebody get, like, dismembered with a chainsaw. Fine. That made me crazy. I'm sorry. The the guy who hits the propeller and then starts spinning, that one makes me laugh every time. (laughs) I feel so much of this movie feels awful. Like, I have told Stephanie in ways that, like, I've told Stephanie before in ways that she just doesn't understand that I am just terrified of a death at sea in all of the various ways that you can die at sea, whether it's being trapped below deck while water fills it up or, you know, just etc. But the moment that dude hits the propeller and just starts flipping end over end, I can't not laugh. Like, regardless of how horrible I feel... Before or after. Oh yeah, I don't uh, think they should have had him flip as many should, times. No. It's too many times. That's fair. That's fair. 
more so when the when the ship uh goes goes vertical and people start falling and hitting yeah. other parts of the ship. Yeah. Yes. That's that's when I Well, because it feels up. so wrong. It's like that's not that's not the way it should be. <laughs> yeah, that's not how people know? move on a boat. Right, exactly. Like it, it it's the inversion of everything. Like the <laughs> it, it's completely unnatural and surrealistic. Like when they're on the the prow of the ship or whatever it's called, God, I, I'm I'm rusty on my nautical terms. The bow. Yeah, yeah, that. And and it's like sinking towards the water, and it's like, what is this? Like this is all wrong. But that's that's the whole point. Like, it, and and I think it it's so it's just so well done. Like, I don't even want to know what kind of huge set they had to build for this, but it feels so so very real. Like. In, oh in yeah, the shot. the scene when um Jack and Rose are running down the corridor that's being flooded, oh, and like spot. it's a it's a oneer, so you can tell like they actually did that. I would not have wanted to be an actor in that moment. Like no. you want talk about some freaking Mm-mm. oh god, like being in the crying. moment. Yeah, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that'll get some real acting out of you for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Try remembering your lines in that moment. No, just the set design is so good. Like you can tell that James Cameron really, really cared about making it accurate, and it's it's great. Um, Whew. gosh. Okay, so let's do some closing thoughts. Um, <laughs> uh, Caleb and I wrote down Rise of Skywalker once. What this movie has. What did I mean in regards to? Oh, Rose yeah. taking. <laughs> Jack's last name. Rose, Rose Dawson. Rise of Skywalker really thought they were doing something with Ray Skywalker, <laughs> but they weren't. <laughs> the moment Rose says that her name is Rose Dawson in this movie, it means something. It means so much. She is giving up her previous life. She is giving up her class, her status, all of her connections, her family, everyone she knows, so that she can start over fresh. Right. Ray Skywalker <laughs> is... She's just saying some bullshit. <laughs> I... <laughs> right, and it's also, it's like... They also they they chose the brand recognition over actual emotional impact because the only character in in those movies who goes by Skywalker is Luke and like what she wasn't marrying Luke or Luke. No, she, she was like Luke. Yeah. She, she was he was a guy that trained her for for a few days and they fought a few times. Luke's like just some guy, you know. He's, he's a he's guy. Just this guy. Right, right. Um, but they. You could tell that spiritually that's kind of what they're trying to do. And I get it. But wow, does it hit so much harder in this movie? Like, (laughs) or it hits so much better, I should say. Like, it's a very quiet moment, but it means so much. Right. In regards to the story. Because her name was all that she had. Like, even her mom says that, like, their fortunes were more or less depleted. Like, all that they had was this bullshit aristocracy like that the old world conveyed upon them and so pretty much all they had was their name and she gave that up because what they had wasn't what she wanted and she wanted she wanted what jack had and so it's a good ending for her yeah all right Yes. <laughs> Do we want to stop there? Yeah, we probably or, should. There's so we much need... more you could say about this movie, but yes. But we do, we do need to we save need some to words for yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so two two quick things. Uh, uh, 
Caleb, uh, $20.1912 was worth $537.06. Holy today? Jesus. That's fair. I'd take that. I'd take that over dinner, honestly. <laughs> 500 bucks. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, don't, we don't have to spend as much time on it as we did uh, for, for Cal. Uh, but since we were talking about alternative castings, I just want to uh, leave you with images in your head oh. of what could have been for this movie. Uh, people who were in line for Jack. Uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, okay, also Matthew McConaughey, uh, Robin himself, Chris O'Donnell, yes, uh, Stephen Dorff, and Billy Doctor Dangle Dick Manhattan Crudup. Who uh, are these last two people? <laughs> I'm not really sure. I like know Stephen Dorff's face, but Billy Crudup, uh, I really only know him from uh, Doctor Manhattan and yeah. Watchmen. You, uh, Jared Leto was also considered, but he refused to audition. Uh, well, I mean, well, screw that guy anyway. So, I mean, you telling me Chris O'Donnell could have been the golden boy of the ninety, the late nineties, instead of Leo DiCaprio? <laughs> yeah. We could have gotten whatever. What's eating Gilbert Grape with Chris O'Donnell? <laughs> whatever, man. Look, he's he's making that sweet, sweet CSI. I think in CIS Los Angeles, there. Justin. Oh, okay. There we go. Uh, uh, as far as Rose, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, uh, Gabrielle Anwar, and Reese Witherspoon were considered. Claire Danes. She was in Romeo and Juliet. So I we know. We will be talking about her. <laughs> I feel like Claire Danes could have played this role. Oh, absolutely. Now, so could Winona Ryder. Yeah, and I think Kate Winslet does amazingly, so I wouldn't want to replace her. But I think the actress's list is maybe a little more promising than the actress's list. Absolutely. <laughs> Winona Ryder and Claire Danes provide so much more promise than every man listed on <laughs> the other list. I think, honestly, Leonardo DiCaprio is a great cast for this role because you really needed to, like, sell the charm of this role because, I mean... And if there's one thing that man has, yes, yeah, he was he was pretty and charming, and I mean you really needed to sell that because she's basically like Rose is literally tossing it all away like for love, and I mean good for her, but you really need to to sell that in the movie that she's like yeah. I'm a, I'm gonna ditch this all for this poor boy, and I'm gonna ditch my whole family and fuck them and like everything like that, like and um I do think that they sold it, yes. Uh, thank you, Justin, for those fun facts. Yeah, that was actually pretty interesting. Wow, what do you know? On on that note, I think we're done with our first half. Finally. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is a long one, guys. Yes. Well, it's a long movie, to be fair. It, it, that's true. I, it, we'll be with you after the break. Hi, everyone. Justin here. Thank you so much for checking out our show. You may notice some audio issues during these early episodes as we're recording them in separate locations during quarantine. It is our intention to record in person once it's safe, but for now, we work with what we have. Please follow the recommended guidelines, wear your masks, stay safe, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back to Sounds Familiar. We hope you had a lovely break. We sure did. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> We're back to discuss, uh, how do you say, uh, Stephanie? <laughs> the title of the film. Uh, Portrait de la jeune fille en feu. 
or a portrait of a lady on fire. Uh, let's hope I didn't completely mangle the uh, French pronunciation yes. there. Yes, oh, winner of the Cannes Film Festival, yes, yeah, 2019. Uh, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Uh, yes, uh, best best screenplay and Cesar Award for best cinematography. And wow, does it deserve both of those. Absolutely. Yes. And it, I should have gone best sound design, too, because the sound I, design, is the great, sound yeah. design mm-hmm. oh, my God. So quiet and yet so loud. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> how do we, how do we, how do you say, get into this? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Qu'est-ce que c'est pas? Yeah. How do you? God. This, this portion of the episode is going to have a lot of mangled French in it, isn't it? Um. No, only uh, if I can restrain <laughs> myself, it, it won't. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, one of the more recent uh, recent uh, movies we've talked about on here, with only 1917, I, I can think, being as recent as this one, and Knives Out slightly before these two, mm-hmm. are, but also quite recent. Um, yeah. Well, that depends on when Cannes is, isn't it? Is Cannes not in the summer? Oh, good lord. I, well, I don't know. It's, so it lists it as 2019 on here, but I think in Letterboxd it says 2020. That might be the U.S. release date. Yeah, I was about to say, there's a difference between when it premiered at Cannes and when most of the world was able to watch it. Yes. Cannes in May of 2019, a wide French release in September of 2019. Thank you, Justin. So it predates both of them, but still... One of the more recent movies we've discussed. Yes. This was another example of we came up with a tenuous connection at best, and then as we watched both movies, yeah, (laughs) discovered, wow, there is far more here than we expected. Yeah. No, it, it, they are very different stories told by, um, told from very different perspectives, but spiritually. Spiritually, it feels like they share a lot. Okay. I <laughs> Stephanie had the great idea, and I'm not going to say it was a bad idea, to... Okay, so if you don't know, <laughs> Titanic, when it was originally released, uh, was released on VHS in two separate tapes. Oh my god, that thing's intimidating. <laughs> the first tape is before the iceberg, and the second tape is after the iceberg. And that's where Stephanie and I delineated. We watched Titanic yes. over two separate nights. Mm. In the same night, we watched the Titanic after the iceberg. The second half. The yes. second half. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We were in we the were same evening. We were we were in the mood, you know. In the mood for some sad, sad love stories <laughs> and and some yearning some oh god the yearning oh, god that's so what that's much what yearning. yeah that's what see that's why i love these oh. movies so much like they i would take this the, over a cutesy rom-com any day these the way these movies dole it out to you oh yeah the after the you know the first 20 or 30 minutes is all set up and then, like, the, the characters meet, and you're like, hmm, okay, yeah, you know, they're going to be friends. Mm. And then after those first two or three scenes, you're just like, come on. Come on. <laughs> Give it to me. I know. We know it's going to happen. Yeah. Come on. There were, there were some moments in this film that, like, uh, before they even uh, kissed the first time, like, just the tension was there. And I was like, mm. I, th- I think I can hear my heart beating. <laughs> I know. It, I know. The tension. Okay. For... First, part of the reason for the way the tension works so well 
is, is what I was talking about, the sound design. There is no, from what I couldn't recall, there is no music in this film that is not diegetic. Right. Yeah. Diegetic meaning occurring within the world of the movie itself. I realized that this time around. So the only times there are music is one, when, what's her name? Marianne? Marianne. Yeah. Marianne is playing the harpsichord. Yeah, I playing guess, the harp, yeah. <laughs> the harpsichord for, what is the other girl's name? Eloise. Eloise, thank you. And then at the very end, when they're both listening to a symphony. Uh-huh. And... I know. The rest of the time... Talk about setup and payoff. It is the only sound design... The only sound is people talking, or people breathing, or the sound of the ocean breeze, or the mm. sound of a fire crackling in the background... It is, you are entirely in the moment with these characters the entire time. Right, it's very sensual, like, in, in every sense of the word. Like, it it feels like it draws so much from the atmosphere and, mm. and the environment. Like, whether it draws silence or whether it draws sound. Like, everything about this weird cloistered atmosphere kind of adds to to the rich sort of layer yes, tension. Yes, it's, it's the, the natural... This takes place in, I believe, 1770. Mm-hmm. And the natural silence of the time period does so much to add to the yearning. <clears throat> just that every... The scenes where they're just looking at each other or they're having... Terse, tense conversations. Mm. You can feel the tension because there is nothing else there to fill that space. There is no score. There is no radio playing in the background. When, 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 when she is, Marianne is painting Eloise and they are talking. There is nothing to fill that awkward silence. All you feel is the tension at every moment. And that subdued, restrained sound design is, I believe, largely responsible for the success of that tension. Well, they talk about lovers feeling as if they're the only two people in the world, and it very much feels that way. In so many of these scenes, it it feels like there ceases to be another world. It is so very insular and so very, such a tiny little bubble that they are in. And that's kind of the whole point is that when they're on this island, this sort of strange, magical, sequestered place, that that is where their love can blossom when it can't anywhere else. And that's why it's sort of compared to the underworld with the Orpheus and Eurydice motif that I'm sure we'll get into. God, so well done. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I know. I love you know I love a reference to Greek mythology. Um, but but yes, the way it's sort of this underworld, this uh, spiritual place that is completely cut off from the rest of the world, um, and uh, the silence really adds to that that feeling of just intense closeness and intimacy. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm just. I'm, I'm just over here thinking about. I love the way that you two make me think about the things that I've previously thought. Oh, you're welcome. I am. So, I am so bad. At, I am. I am amateur level, like <laughs> oh, film no. critique. No. Like trying to to think about things. Oh, with the, well. 
they mention the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. They literally read from it, and you guys have as soon all it took was Stephanie mentioning it to trigger something in my brain. <laughs> that, okay. So Marianne literally travels to this secluded island to to the River Styx. She is she is she is hired by Eloise's mother to paint a portrait of her for Eloise's fiance. Um, it's an arranged marriage, and so Marianne is literally carried across the ocean, this metaphorical river sticks, as Stephanie said, to this island to be with Eloise, our Eurydice. And then, you know, not to spoil anything, it's going to get spoiled anyway, so who cares? At the very end, they... (sighs) So Orpheus and Eurydice, it ends tragically because Orpheus turns and looks to see if Eurydice is there with him right before they cross the threshold because he just couldn't wait any longer to see her. And then at the very end, it it is almost... I'm just now thinking of it in this moment as almost a happy ending because in this metaphor, Marianne is Orpheus. And... Oh, okay, I don't know if that makes it happy or not. Okay, at the very end... <laughs> It At the very end, Marianne sees Eloise at a symphony, and Eloise Eloise previously played a song. Marianne previously played a song for Eloise, telling her that, trying to tell her that there are plenty of symphonies, there's plenty of music in the city she'll be moving to. Right, and Eloise she was says, "You're trying to tell her that you're trying life to tell me that still be good after." Right. Marry. Well, she was trying to say, "So I will have some solace, or yeah. the, I will have a way to find solace." And then at the very end, Marianne sees Eloise at a symphony, listening to the very song that Marianne played for her, and it's Orpheus seeing Eurydice at the very end of their mm-hmm. journey. It's like they're saying goodbye is like the painting that she said. All of this. Yes. The painting that Marianne painted all. Oh God. All of this just to say that all it took was Stephanie saying something for the gears in my brain to actually work for once. Uh, Justin. I guess since we're talking about the Orpheus and Eurydice thing so much, that whole conversation um, where they're reading it to Sophie, I love it. It's captivating as hell. Uh, I, I don't even know what to say about it. This movie makes me feel stupid because I can't articulate. <laughs> That's exactly how I the, feel, Justin. When we finished the it, of it, I told Stephanie, I was like, I don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about this movie. <laughs> but just well, <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, just the the uh, as Stephanie said way back at the beginning of this episode four years ago. Uh. <laughs> Um, the English translation, I can only imagine what it sounded, uh, sounds like to someone who speaks French, uh, but just every line in that scene, uh, uh, the one that sticks out to me the most is the, uh, uh, he made not the lover's choice, but the poet's, uh, mm. just every single line, I was like, what, mm. what type of grade A literature is being <laughs> right? to me right now? <laughs> And that's that's exactly the decision that Marianne makes at the very end is the poet's choice. Mm-hmm. She could, she could have approached Eloise at that symphony to gone over and said hello, but she knew that would have been far more painful than just letting the memory be. And that's um so the motif of the preservation of the lover through art 
is something that is present both in Titanic and Portrait of the La- Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which um is something that I only kind of realized after we decided to pair these together. <laughs> I mean, okay, I think I did sort of have in the back of my mind. They're both about painting painting a picture of someone. Not just um, about the preserve but the preservation of them in the art, which is important, but also the seeing the capturing, them. yes, the seeing. Yeah. So, right, and that's kind of something that's explored in both of these is kind of through the medium of art, I guess in this in this particular instance, um, visual art, painting, um, the, the capturing of someone's essence that cannot be seen by anyone except the one who captures it, by the, the one who truly sees this person. Because when you think about um, Rose in Titanic and Eloise in Portrait of a Lady on Fire... These are high-class women um, who, as we discussed earlier, they're basically their only ability, the only thing they can hope for is to be married off to that, right, more or less the highest bidder. They're pawns in other people's games. Right. They are not truly seen as anything other than a, a beautiful object, more or less. And so in the when their their lover paints them... That is that is he or she seeing them as a person and kind of seeing into who they truly are. And that that is sort of the function of this metaphor. When Jack paints Rose, it, and what part, part of what makes this scene so sexy, which we didn't talk about in the last part, but part of what makes it so great is that Rose is very much the, the dominant personality in this scene. Like, she, she's stripping off her clothes and telling Jack to paint her because she wants to see herself the way he sees her. She wants that freedom to be seen through the eyes of someone who doesn't view her as an object. Um, and it's sort of not exactly the same circumstances, but it's similar in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, Heloise is less active in the painting, but... Now that I say that, she does become more active. She says, I will pose for her. Like, she would not pose for the former male artist who was painting her. But she says that she will pose for Marianne because she sees that Marianne truly wants to see her for who she is. Mm -hmm. And so the metaphor of the painting becomes, like, this kind of motif, like... Rose's, um, her new painting <laughs> is discovered when the guys discover the wreck of the Titanic and they're all like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, uh, Rose in her old age comes back to claim it as like, yeah, wasn't I a knockout? Like, that's her like, <laughs> like reclaiming that experience as her own. And then, of course, also there's the framing device in Portrait of a Lady on Fire when one of her students asks, like, what what's that? And there's the portrait of Heloise's back with her dress on fire. And that's what kind of launches Marianne into the memory. Um, so, the, <laughs> yeah, the, and the way there's layers here. The portrait of a lady on fire takes it another step. And that the subject of the painting also <laughs> desires a portrait of the person painting them. She... Uh, mm. Eloise desires a way to it's view Marianne yeah. in the future. And just the shot of Marianne drawing her own portrait mm. 
from a mirror positioned on Eloise's crotch. It's I. <laughs> it's beautiful. It sounds <laughs> vulgar because the word crotch sounds vulgar, but the the shot itself is Between just like Between Eloise's I, delicately positioned legs. <laughs> thank you, Stephanie. It, and her face, like her intense gaze, like right there, it's it's extremely erotic. And yes, we because love you that. see you see the painter, you see Marianne's face intensely focused mm-hmm. directly in between Eloise's legs, while you see Eloise staring intensely, intensely at Marianne. Mm-hmm. Right, it's very sexy with without needing to do very much at all. <laughs> <laughs> Without technically needing to have any nudity in that moment, like, there haven't been a lot of movies that have been bold enough to put a mirror on between someone's legs and put someone's face there. Oh, <laughs> like, oh you're making me think of this in Community when Shirley's like, did you see that movie poster where Gerard Butler had that? <laughs> had that heart over his wiener? <laughs> that resonated with me. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> No, it's great though. Right, it's great because it's it's the the painting of oneself or one's lover as the the most essential expression of them. Because you know, it's been said that the essence of romance, especially when depicted in cinema, is the looking of one person at another or the looking of two people at each other. So it's you know, there are many dynamics for two people on screen. But the most romantic dynamic you can get is two people completely regarding one another, completely seeing one another to the exclusion of all else. And that is what happens when, with, with the painting, is truly seeing someone, like seeing who they truly are despite what, you know, society, TM, or whoever <laughs> places upon them. You see their true essence. And that is romantic because yeah. it's seeing and being seen by someone. Absolutely. Justin. And, and just combining some of the ideas that we've had here. Um, uh, first of all, every single shot uh, in this movie is fantastic. You can remove every it frame of painting, literally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but what we were saying about truly seeing someone, I, it, it's so well done that the most. Um, uh, romantic, sexually tense, erotic, however you want to say it, parts of this movie aren't even when they are being, like, physically intimate with each other. Because uh, we're not shown that. Of them looking yeah. at each other, <laughs> uh, be it from across the fire or just Oof. as they're, as she's posing and uh, she's watching her paint. It just, it just, every single one of those, it is palpable. Just those, <laughs> yes. those first couple scenes when Marianne is joining Eloise on her walks and there are, Oh my God. So the, 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 the shots are essentially from Marianne's point of view and Eloise turns and looks at the camera and the camera just holds on her gaze and you're just struck by one. How beautiful Eloise is. She, she's very pretty. And then just the fact that she has this solid, constant unrestrained gaze directly into the lens. She has a challenging look which feels romantic in a way because she's like challenging Marianne to see her and to to look at her. Yes and as the viewer just those we're not as movie viewers we're not used to the oneer is a fairly rare technique. It's very often talked about, and I'm reluctant to even call these a oneer but it's the (laughs) it's the closest thing I can think of in that they are they are Long, 
unrestrained, uncut shots, yeah. right? And there are numerous times before they ever even have their first kiss that the camera is just looking at Eloise's face and she's staring right back and you as the viewer are just feeling intensely like oh goodness like what is yeah this, this is strange what is this is intense um and while I'm thinking about it the it was on their first or second walk and when it showed Marianne from profile and she turned her head sideways to look Oh, and in looking at shot, Eloise, yeah. it reveals that Eloise was standing right next to her, which you could not see when Marion was looking straight forward. Mm-hmm. What a cool, what just, I'm yeah. sorry, from just a nerdy, <laughs> like, cinematography perspective, what a cool concept for a reveal shot. It's not even a cut, it's just showing someone's profile. And then as they turn their head to look at the other person, it simultaneously reveals that mm-hmm. person that you couldn't see previously. What a cool shot! It not only that she turns her head, we see Eloise there. It happens twice. Eloise looking forward. The third time, Eloise is looking back at her, mm-hmm. and it's almost a jump scare, like because mm-hmm. it just like turns around. <laughs> She's looking directly at you, like, and it you feel like Marianne's like startled, like <laughs> that she's startled by that moment because suddenly, the 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 object i i use this delicately here that she is regarding from an artist uh perspective becomes the subject becomes someone who is now looking back at right her. because at this point in time at the point in time that that shot happens marianne is having to secretly attempt to study eloise to paint her portrait in secret because this is before eloise agrees to pose for her mm-hmm. right and there's also that kind of I don't know, kind of a a little bit of a sexy challenge here, which is that Heloise is sort of untamable in in a way that like a good historical romance love interest must be. Absolutely. In that she's refused to let other painters paint her. She won't be still for them. She won't be a passive subject. And so the only way that Marianne is able to end up painting her is by regarding her as an actual person. And by not just viewing her as a still life to be conveyed onto a canvas, but as a person that she must then understand. Like, I, I love when uh, when Marianne comes forward and shows uh, Heloise the the painting uh, that Heloise has seen Marianne uh, the entire time, and just that line of uh, I would understand or. It, it's okay that it looks nothing like me. It's a shame that it looks nothing like you. I was like, God damn. <laughs> 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 oh yeah. No, that's part of what's so great about Heloise is that she is, she is not nice. Like about it. She is very like challenging and very demanding. Like at every, every step, um, she consistently challenges Marianne and like questions her and demands more of her, which feels very sexy because it's like she feels the opposite of passive, even though she's supposed to be passive. She's supposed to be the nice, like rich girl who's going to be married off. Like they, (laughs) they do challenge each other and, and they question each other. Um, right. And that's, (laughs) That's what keeps it feeling so tense. <laughs> God, he's amazing. Uh, now that we've said all that, 
Um, Do we have any specific points? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so many. So many. Um... Does anybody does anybody want to go f- before me because I know I have notes but not not everyone took notes so <laughs> yeah Caleb um okay I'm good <laughs> oh sure sure okay um yeah so I don't know I was interested. And, and I, this, I never really felt sure if it fully came to fruition, explanation, however you want to put it. The fact that Eloise's sister, like, she's essentially living out the fate that her sister was supposed to have. Mm-hmm. But her sister killed herself. Like, that's... No one wants to come out and say it, but there's that kind of chilling moment where the maid says, like... um. I don't believe she just fell and Marianne says why and she says because when she fell she didn't cry out like so it it's assumed that like she knew what she was doing and she threw herself over the cliff so then with that shadow kind of hanging over Heloise and like that indication that she came back from the convent which that has to also have a certain significance because of a convent meaning like perpetual like chastity and self-denial and <laughs> pretty much anything that could be considered the opposite of being a lesbian like that kind of thing like other than the fact that you're surrounded by other, other women. than the yeah, fact that you live pretty much exclusively with women um <laughs> we'll just disregard that um but so yeah i was kind of interested in that because I, i'm not really sure what the point of it was and I don't say that as a criticism I more say that as I could not be fully understanding what the point of that motif was because there was very much that sense that Heloise was kind of living out her sister's footsteps and there was that fear especially at the beginning that she was going to do the same thing that her sister did and mm-hmm. throw herself over the cliff which yeah. personally if I was the mom I would have been like okay the first one killed herself to get out of this so <laughs> I'm just going to not risk losing another child but what do I know we're going to remove cliffs from the equation yeah, we're just going <laughs> to level all the cliffs <laughs> just cut or them down I was going to say go back to, yeah. to Paris but That'd probably be easier but <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to lock her in a room without any you know, belts or way to hang herself yeah, than oh it God. is to... And you know she had to have thought that having a female painter come would be easier because <laughs> she'd be like, oh, they'll just be friends. Uh... <laughs> yeah. The best uh, yeah. kind of friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, because of that, uh, that looming dread that her sister had committed suicide, uh, and I knew nothing about the plot um, of this movie, really, uh, going into it, uh, which I don't know if we talked about uh, our experiences with this movie. It, it, it's my we first didn't. time watching it. We yeah. just launched I feel, we, right I feel into like we it. covered that in Titanic, and that you and I haven't seen it, and Stephanie has. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I had uh, seen this once before we watched it this time. But movies that are this, uh, that take their time this much and are this quiet, intense, uh, just because I've seen a lot of. Uh, 
uh, A24 movies, I thought this was going to have a lot darker of an ending. And I was like, oh shit, is she going to self-immolate on the beach? Oh Oh, no, oh, I'm glad that didn't happen. And Marianne has like made that painting to deal with the trauma. Oh no. (laughs) Okay, that's kind of cool, but I'm glad that didn't happen. Uh, No, I I was much happier with this ending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that that concept, but oh god, please no. (laughs) Justin was just waiting the entire movie. Oh god, when is she going to set herself on fire? Oh my god. (laughs) For a different movie, that would be cool, but for this one, no, no, no. <laughs> and then when the fire was like for a kind of cute tame reason, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was an interesting moment too because it felt very surreal almost, mm-hmm. which, which is another example of like it's sometimes hard to tell how much of this is from the person's perspective and right. how much is literally happening. Because Eloise doesn't even seem to notice when she catches on fire. Someone right. else like runs over and puts her out. But that's what's so fascinating because remember later she says like you wanted to kiss me then and she's like oh I did but not for the first time and so yeah. it's almost like she was looking at her and they were so like locked together in that moment she didn't even notice that her dress was catching fire. Yeah, it's so, so but... good. Oh my god. Right. Right. <laughs> right because it's like the metaphorical becoming literal it's because they are burning for each other and that fire is catching like the fire literally physically catches onto her dress and she doesn't even notice it um that <laughs> right and and i love a movie that will do that that will kind of tread those like kind of thin line between the i don't know the surrealistic and what's actually happening because so much of what happens feels very much like metaphor become real. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it feels real at the same time. Like the the ending scene that we were talking about where she's watching her react to the, the song. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. It feels like a very explicit, like this, this is the metaphor, but also like something that would actually happen. Like, because of of music conveying such a strong emotional <laughs> Caleb that, I'm sorry that that final shot okay oh, God Marianne sees Eloise sitting across the concert hall and then the camera slowly fades from looking at Marianne to transitioning across to being right just looking at Eloise and it's just a solid like two minutes of Eloise listening to the music and crying and trying to hold it in and failing and it's just it you're forced as a viewer to just sit there and, and think and feel and emote with her and, and it is her, t- just watching her go through uh, uh, different emotions as the song is going just oh, like yeah. when they were sitting at the harpsichord uh, and Marianne was telling her, "Imagine this, imagine this." You can see that exact. She's imagining that, yeah. Yeah. It, oh my God. It, uh, so I'm gonna butcher her name. Stephanie can correct me. Uh, Celine Shama. Yeah, Celine okay. Shama. I'm assuming based Shema. on my limited knowledge of, Fran- of French. <laughs> the the bravery and commitment uh, to ideas that she believes is good and turns out are good. Uh, (laughs) She is a very courageous filmmaker. And I I am blown away. I I haven't seen any of the rest of her work. If it's even half as good as this, uh, she is uh, one of 
the best modern filmmakers uh, yeah. right now. Uh, oh, I totally look forward to seeing what else she comes up I, with. I will be I will be following her career because holy mother of God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she makes some bold choices and they pay off beautifully. Absolutely. Every single like bold choice, the moment, every single moment that makes you go, I don't this is unusual. It, it, well, the, it the choice works. to not have a score is certainly I, interesting, but yeah. it pays off because music features, like, diegetic music features, like, when the women sing, like, the, um, that Latin chant or whatever it is, uh, when Marianne plays the piano, when Heloise listens to the symphony, it's so intentional and it feels like that breaking of the, the, the utter silence, like, feels so much like life like passion and every time that music enters into the soundscape is a passionate moment like even if it doesn't seem that way uh at the moment even if they're not in physical contact when marianne plays the piano like that's an extremely intimate moment between the two of them and then when the women sing later, Marianne looks across the fire. She looks at Heloise and Heloise's dress catches fire. And there's that strange moment where they look at each other. And then a split second later, the women come and put out the fire. It comes back to real life. But before that, there's that strange surrealistic moment where they just look at each other and the fire just rises. And then at the very end looking at her and her reacting to the music and it's like that she it's like she's listening to Marianne again it's like she's listening to the harpsichord it's like she's remembering every single thing that happened in time to the music and it feels extremely in tune with those those artistic mediums that like music painting storytelling if you think about it all three of those things are used as I, I don't know, metaphorical means of conveying the themes of the story. So, <laughs> yeah, to, to say the least, it's a very well-crafted, uh, self-aware film. Yeah, man, this is like the, uh, the one time, um, I wish I would have watched this, like, yesterday. Uh, usually I like to watch the movies, uh, no more than a day before, usually the day of, uh, that we record, uh, and god damn do I wish I had time to process (laughs) sit with it. I keep, I keep getting lost, like, uh, I'll hear something, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna make a point about that, and then I just, like, I get lost in the deeper meanings (laughs) of everything. After the first time I watched this movie, I spent so long thinking about the metaphor of Orpheus and Eurydice Oh. Um, in regards to this movie. Um, in particular, I was extremely fascinated by one of the few actual lapses into the surreal, which is Marianne seeing sort of this ghostly figure of Heloise in in her, oh, her that, wedding gown, that essentially. that fucked with me. That, right, it was very strange. Me. Like, your first time seeing it, you don't really know what you're seeing. Like, you don't really understand what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's metaphor, of course. And given that Marianne is the one seeing it, we already know that she's the one, she's one who sees things through this visual metaphor of, of art. And so of course she would see this painting like portrayal of Heloise in her white gown. 
Um, but it, it's <laughs> until you've seen it the first time, it can be difficult to decipher what it means. Breaking here, Caleb. Sorry, were you looking at something? I'm sorry. I'm just googling something unrelated. Okay. Do we want to cut back in? Sorry, I, I was. <laughs> no, it's we're reading. fine. I was just trying to. I was just thinking about the. The. Okay, I don't want to say the abundance of Orpheus and Eurydice stories. I was just thinking it's it's interesting that this year premiered the year that you know Hades Town kind of came into its own huge thing with, with its own version of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. Yeah. Basically, I was just trying to find out what year it really got big and what year it won the Tonys, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> There's uh, Orpheus and Eurydice and um, Hades and Persephone are two stories that in the last, yeah. I'd say, four years have been uh, blowing up for some reason. I don't know exactly why that is but uh i mean you have this movie you have hades town uh I, i'm thinking if i'm not mistaken there's an animated series that people are into that is based on it there's um, lore olympus it's a web uh, yeah lore web olympus. Cartoon, uh, I think? yeah yeah uh the video game hades uh yes. just came out uh yep. th- so much of That's it and i'm wondering I'm wondering why that is what is going on like just uh, something in, in the, the water collective man. subconscious that's yeah that's interesting because I consider myself into into Greek myth, that kind of thing, and yet a lot of those properties I'm not super familiar with, I haven't got involved with yet, and yet I I, I understand the appeal. Um, I couldn't speak to why it's part of the our particular cultural zeitgeist. <laughs> I'm not at that level of YouTuber yet, um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, YouTuber slash podcaster. But um, I think there. It, like I could, like I said, I couldn't speak to the zeitgeist, but I could speak to our natural human desire to reconcile the two sides of life and death. Um, you know, life and death, being and not being, um, like together and apart. Those, as aspects of a romantic story, those are kind of almost essential because, however they resolve, there has to be that tension of. Either we have, <laughs> I can't speak. Um, either we are together or we are separate. Either we remember or we regret. In the words of this movie, like either we are alive or we are dead. And when you're in love, it feels very much like a dichotomy between those things. Like either I exist with this person or I I don't exist. Like the the person that I am is lost because the person that I am has become so intertwined with this person that I can no longer be apart from them. And that's the sort of tension that is present in both of these movies is b- because because these characters discover themselves through knowing someone else when the separation comes there there is that question of will they be able to even continue as a whole person? Um, and of course in Titanic we know that the answer is yes which is good which is an optimistic answer it's it's a little more ambiguous in the case of Portrait of a Lady on Fire it's we know that she is able to continue on and yet through the framing of Orpheus and Eurydice we we are given the impression that she is 
she sees herself as having had to return to the world of the living, but she sees her love as having having died, essentially. Having gone to the underworld, to a place that she cannot ever fully join until she dies, you know, until they are equalized in that way. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, it looks like you were going to say she, something. Nothing important at all. Um, just, uh, oh, I had a thought that led to another unimportant thought. If you really want to know. That's often how things go on this podcast. Was, um, (laughs) yes. Timmy's in the well. (laughs) (laughs) To quote, to to quote Watsky. <laughs> Corniness is honesty that's wrapped in cliche, oh, and most beautiful. slow jam lyrics aren't shit I'm brave enough to say without a smirk. <laughs> to quote Marty McFly, <laughs> that's heavy. I. <laughs> that's what I had, Stephanie. What that's we... what you you were talking, and you say, Caleb, you look like you have something to say. Yeah. That's what I. Just... No, I. I okay. thought first. I thought that's heavy, and then I thought the, you know, most slow gym lyrics aren't. <laughs> shit, I'm brave enough to say without a smirk. That's essentially what it is, okay. you know. Yes, that's these movies are brave enough to say this without a smirk. Well, because they weren't directed by you know, uh, middle class white dudes from America. Yeah. Right, it's... Well, I don't know about James Cameron. I actually can't speak for him. Maybe he was a middle-class white dude. Maybe he's just an exception. (laughs) No, and that's something that I love about these movies is that they are pretty unabashed about about leaning into the the romance. Uh, Absolutely. uh, You know, and it's, it's sad, but it's, it's sincere, you know, like it, it might not be a happy ending, but it, it's very it's very appreciative of what is there. They, they both have a sincerity that I really enjoy seeing. Uh, particularly, honestly, with both of these, like, when you think about it, they both take place over a pretty short amount of time. And I'm just glad that neither of them have any of that, you know, when people talk about Romeo and Juliet or, or whatever, they're like, oh, <laughs> they fell in love over, like, three days. <laughs> it, that's so dumb, right? Like, you know. Um, Nobody says that about Jack and Rose. Right. And it's that's the thing. Like, both of these take place over short, short amounts of time, and yet it so much development is packed in that... It, even if technically it is true that it takes place over a really short amount of time, no one gives a fuck because no. the development is genuine. It's, it's sincere and it genuinely changes the characters. So there's no reason. While I'm sure some people would come out and be like, <laughs> "You can't fall in love in, in three days," like there's that wouldn't fit the movie because the movie is like actually committing to to developing the character to, to anyone who says you can't fall in love in three days i feel sorry for you <laughs> i guess yes. you've never fallen in love you've never had days. an intense human connection that ended abruptly yeah no uh, for real excuse these stories for showing people having strong emotions you fucking androids. Exactly. <laughs> 
Right, and that's the whole idea of this genre, is that they have these heightened circumstances, which in a lot of times are, are life or death, more or less, like... And the whole point is that they are heightened in that they happen in a shortened amount of time because people feel this connection to each other and the whole momentum of the movie builds off of that. And that's good. Like, so much of... I feel it's an increasingly rare thing in movies nowadays It is genuine intimacy between characters. And, of course, a lot of that is just due to the the polarization of the way movies are being made, which is essentially just popcorn blockbuster or indie that gets no funding. Like, and I'm very sympathetic to that. I think that sucks. But... And I want more, I want more of this in our uh, popcorn blockbusters. Uh, yes! Looking at you whenever the X-Men enter the MCU, if those characters aren't having interpersonal drama and romance, then you are not doing X-Men right. Well, that's the whole point of <laughs> X-Men, isn't it? Like <laughs> That and racism. <laughs> homophobia. Let's not forget homophobia. That's true. Well, and that's why, I don't know, that's why I've been so excited for, not to go on a tangent, but excited for WandaVision is because uh, it, it feels I, like, so far, it's not over um, yet, I could eat my words, it feels like it is genuinely concerned with small interpersonal dynamics. Yes. Uh, and Justin, no WandaVision spoilers. <laughs> yeah. not... No, 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 no. Uh, I was going to say, since uh, this seems to be collectively uh, one of our favorite MCU things ever. Yes. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna say this on mic, so we have to do it. Uh, we Uh-oh. should do, when WandaVision's over, we should do a special episode where we Ooh, just talk about it. Yes, we should. I would love to do that. <laughs> I, I'm so, the show is about halfway over now. So much of it, I'm like, if this goes well and not spectacularly badly, the way I am conditioned to expect that it will, and hopefully it will not. Thank you, Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, if it goes well, there is so much to be unpacked. Like, with the show, like, especially with this most recent episode, every time I heard a line, I was like, that feels like it has significance. Like, Mm -hmm. um, which is great. That's what I want in a script. Yes, please. Like, that's so much of what... Now, I love the MCU. I'm not one of those people who is like, <laughs> Marvel's so dumb. Death of cinema. I know. I love Marvel, for better or worse. <laughs> but so much of it often does feel like it neglects kind of, like, more... Well, it is. It's afraid to be know. sincere. Right, right. It feels like it's supposed to... It's trying so the, hard to be cool. It is. It is sad when some of the most sincere moments in the entire Infinity Saga are moments between <laughs> Rocket Raccoon and <laughs> Thor the God of Thunder. I, mean, I say, itself is look, kinda, kinda I say cool. that it's sad, but it's also intensely cool. <laughs> right? That some of the God. most emotionally resonant scenes are genetically modified alien raccoon <laughs> telling Thor the Asgardian god of thunder or like talking to him about if he's emotionally okay <laughs> like <laughs> it's I 
it's simultaneously right. sad for the series, but also really cool. And that's why WandaVision is also so great when it leans into the inherent weirdness of yes. the the human like superheroine witch in love with an artificial android man who was created a by synthesoid. Tony Stark. It's yeah. like it's like exactly. I dream of genie, but with like an equal power dynamic almost. Right. Like they're both kind of weird. Like they're both from something other. And that's what is so like sweet and human ironically about it is that they both come from that how did we get to talk about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is already this is already a long episode we'll talk about WandaVision on that bonus episode yeah, yeah, yeah. bring it back around anyways let's let's circle it let's back take it back now y'all um, so Charlie Brown <laughs> one cry this time oh my yes honestly so so portrait of a lady on fire do, do we uh, have any final notes we want to cover yes um Oh, Stephanie says yes. Um, <laughs> I'm looking over my notes. Um, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm still very entranced by the the odd lapse into the surrealistic that doesn't happen much, which is Marianne seeing what seems to almost be the ghost of Heloise. In the the ethereal so white nightgown, right? And I I still haven't completely put my finger on what it means with a capital M. You know what I mean? I keep thinking about it, and I I keep kind of sort of figuring out what I think it means, but I never quite get there. If that uh, makes sense. My read on it is. Um... It's Marianne uh, at first kind of being afraid uh, to open up about how she's feeling to Eloise because she knows how this is going to end. Yes. Um, so it is just, it, it it's her knowing that no matter uh, what happens between the two, that's how it's going to end. And then that's ultimately the vision that she's seeing is the last time. Uh, she sees her obviously until like later in her life but that is that exact image um, yeah what she had been fearing the entire movie is the last thing she god sees. that moment I, I don't know i can't even call back to a certain point in my life when this has happened but the moment when she like hugs her and there's that sense that she can't even hug her in the way that she wants to because oh, they're god. being observed oh. and she has to run away when when, when she's leaving and Eloise calls out to her and tells her to turn around. It's as if Eurydice was calling out to Orpheus to tell her to look back. Yeah, and Which she's is part wearing of the conversation they had earlier. And yeah, she's wearing like the white so dress. Okay. As it, I, it feels, it also it's. It, yes. I'm I'm th- I'm mixing metaphors. I'm feeling the white dress feels very Lot's wife, the pillar of Ooh. salt. It's white. It's mm. she is encased in that moment. It's ghostly, um, and that's what ghostly, it's supposed yes. to be. It's like that—that that is the death. That is the cutoff point between these two people. That is when one dies to another. Like they it's, continue to live, but there is death right, between it's them. Right. It's what now. if it's it's as if Eurydice knew that they could not make it to the surface together, so she demands Orpheus turn and look at her, so they could have that one last moment, make that last connection before she had to return to the underworld. Right. Not the lover's choice, but the poet's. Like, the preservation of the image that represents that's, 
the love that was. Interesting, because in that scenario, it would be Eurydice makes the choice in that moment. She makes the poet's choice, not Orpheus. And they say that. I think there's a point where they're discussing the painting, or maybe it's when the man who comes to look at the painting, and it's like, usually they're depicted before... Or after. Before or after, but in this moment, it's like, they're They're saying saying goodbye. goodbye. Right. And the fact that she painted that, it was like that was still present in her mind, was that that she was seeing them saying goodbye in that moment. Because the fact that, that Eloise told her to turn around then, it was she didn't want her to just leave. She wanted her to, to see her. She wanted her to remember her that way. And that's why she was haunted by that, was because... That was, like, the last picture Eloise gave her. The last time she decided to to pose for her painting. Would you say it was the last portrait of the lady on fire? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would indeed. Uh, right. It, sorry. <laughs> I'm still reeling from, uh, from something Stephanie said about five minutes ago. <laughs> continued to live. There was death between them now. Oh, no! <laughs> that's such a line! <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, that's that's true. That's I mean, we talked about how people are into Orpheus and Eurydice and into Hades and Persephone. That's the whole concept of both of those is the dividing the dividing line of death. With Orpheus and Eurydice, we have death between them that they can't cross. With, with Hades and Persephone, we have death as sort of this line that can be traversed but is always present like uh present as a force enacting change upon them um and of course death in this case being not necessarily literal like literal possibly but also non-literal like death as in death to each other death of the 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 dream of of romance oh, of being and, together and, and not even to get into the fact <laughs> that uh, uh just just touching upon just proposing the concept that what the 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 French word for orgasm literally means little death le petit mort yes yeah le petit mort. <laughs> I, the little death right it's <sighs> it's love as something so all consuming that it can can eclipse life itself and seem so otherworldly that it 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 be, it becomes like like death like seeing a glimpse of the other side I. I'm it's fucking me up. I'm done with this movie for tonight. <laughs> what? <I'm> no. <laughs> <laughs> right, the, uh. the the French are so romantic. Even orgasms, they're like, it's really about life and death. <laughs> <laughs> and God, you gotta love them for it. Yeah, good good for them. <laughs> uh, je t'aime de, I don't, de Français. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything else. My... <laughs> My brain has given more than it's used to giving. (laughs) I could say a lot more about both of these movies, but for the sake of you guys and your bedtimes, I will reel it in. I I feel like I could talk about these movies forever, but it would take forever because I would need like 10 minutes of silence between each of my points to put them together. I'm just glad that Portrait of a Lady on Fire exists because uh, lesbian cinema was in desperate need of a really good movie. Um, I say that with all love. As, as, as a sapphic lady. Uh, now, what did you guys have before this? Not a whole lot. <laughs> um... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, um, 
that uh, sapphic ladies are getting better better movies and TV shows um, and that we're starting to get more funding. But Stephanie, we didn't actually see them have sex. What if they were just really good friends? <laughs> they were just great friends. They were gals being pals. Gals being pals. Don't get me wrong. I would have loved for the sex to be more explicit. However, in the vein of Titanic, which I feel like this movie kind of aligns with spiritually, I think it was enough that there was the that it was conveyed like, oh, yeah. They definitely had sex. But also, like, we didn't get to see that because it was too intimate it's for us It's not to see for it. us. Yes. Right. Like, that's fair. Yeah. It, there was nothing graphic, but, man, that scene where they're kissing and their lips separate and you see that, like, strand of <gasps> saliva between the two. I was like, this is weirdly the most, like, intense sex scene I've ever seen. Oh, no, no, no. I love a kissing scene that will allow there to be a little saliva. Like, that is the hottest thing. I didn't notice that. Oh, yeah, I wasn't sitting close enough to the screen, I guess. (laughs) No, that's what shows you that the director cares about this looking, like, really erotically like, earthly sexy, like, (laughs) these are actually bodies smushing together and interacting with each other instead (laughs) of just, like, little paper dolls, like, smooching on screen, and I like that, (laughs) (laughs) Especially, especially for, you know, like, lesbian cinema, which, you know... Like, hasn't had a lot of ma- uh, mainstream representation, and the fact that they can s- somehow simultaneously be so reserved. Like, yeah, you get some of this, but you don't get to see the sex scene, but also so, like, intensely erotic, like, with the, just like, like you said, like, the saliva trailing between mouths like that, like, great. I don't know what Love it is. Am, am I wrong in thinking that gay cinema is... They are much more capable at being intensely erotic without showing the actual like sex scene. I mean, I believe it. I feel like it's it's an adaptation, right? Well, because yes, because I think when you are a part of a marginalized sexuality, like so much of your experience of that exists on the margins of kind of like these small furtive gestures. Um, so much can be conveyed just in, like, the meeting of eyes or the touching of hands. Like, um, so much of the small, intimate things can convey so much more because, like, when the stakes of your attraction are that high, like, <laughs> it can mean a lot more than when you're just, you know, kind of screwing around. I mean, not that screwing around isn't great because it is. but, <laughs> But, like... Um, I think so much of eroticism has to be generated through intimacy, and I think that's something that perhaps mainstream cinema, with its, you know, still focus on heterosexual relationships, obviously, is kind of missing, is sort of, you know, you just kind of throw two pretty people together and whatever. Like, sure, I guess, yeah, it's a thing. Like, as opposed to actually focusing on the intimacy and tension and fear and attraction between people like that's where it really comes together (laughs) yeah because it just and it's unfortunate uh, the point i'm about to make uh Mm. but having having any sort of uh queer couple in 
cinema, uh, there's instant stakes there because, yes. like, even if it's not a period piece like this, even if it's set in modern day, unfortunately, uh, there is a lot at stake there. Uh, uh, they risk being judged by their communities, even losing their families. Uh, meanwhile, if you have a straight couple in a film, like, if they're both adults that consent, they can fuck, no one gives a shit. <laughs> right. Uh, Which, that's even yeah. Even in Titanic, uh, that's why, uh, uh, Jack and Rose's relationship is so powerful is because of the the uh, tension caused by their class difference. Yes. Um, if they were both of equal status and had just fallen in love on the ship, like, yeah, it'd be sad, but it wouldn't have been as captivating to watch. Exactly. And that's why that's my favorite kind of romance is the ones where there's a certain tension between them, whether it's because they're gay, whether it's because they're of different classes, different races, you know, whether they're enemies, like that, anything like that, anything that can put a barrier between two people being together automatically just ratchets up the eroticism and the tension. <laughs> like <laughs> Now all we need is a remake of Titanic where Rose falls in love with another woman of similar station. <laughs> Two women who don't want to be married off to rich men. Honestly, yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> I know you would. Yes, I would absolutely watch but, that. Um, but the ending of that film would be so different because they would both just get on one of the lifeboats. Yes. <laughs> no, that, that would be so great. Screw the men. Yes. <laughs> they leave both of their fiancés to die. <laughs> Good for them. Maybe they grab a kid and then, like, <laughs> rescue, raise him or her oh together as, like, gay moms. Like, I would watch that, yes. They were the best of friends. <laughs> the gallest of pals. <laughs> the palest of gals. <laughs> I think that's a good that's enough That's probably far enough point. for today, yes. <laughs> Great movies. Honestly, get the fuck out of here and watch both of them. <laughs> Seriously. Like... Definitely will recommend both of these, um, especially if you're a romantic like me and love when things are, are are beautiful but also pretty sad and you'll want to sit and think about your life afterward and be like, oh, am I really doing what I really want to do and loving who <laughs> I want to love? Hopefully. Like, yes, hopefully you are. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yes, no, just great fucking movies. I could say so much more about both of them, but I will spare you guys. But without further gilding the lily. Yes. Many lilies to be, to be gilded here. <laughs> I feel pretty good yes. about I've this. I've spoken my piece. Uh, I will tweet if I change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure I'll have plenty more to tweet. Alright, with that being said, my name is Caleb. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at actual underscore Caleb. My name's Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Steph has no name and on Letterboxd at Raise Loved Boob. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Justin. You can find me on social media at Blame It on Butler. You can find the show on Twitter at Sounds Familiar. All right. Uh, stay beautiful. Stay in love and 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 stay into Greek mythology. I guess. <laughs> Amen. Good night, everybody. Night, y'all. Friends, it has been a privilege podcasting with you tonight. Here am I, God, to thee. <laughs> <laughs> my God, to thee.
Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at SoundsFamiliar. If you'd like to get in contact with us, drop us a line at SoundsFamiliar at gmail.com. We'd like to thank our friend Chelsea for our logo. Be sure to check her out on Instagram at ChelseaBHDesigns. We'd also like to thank Shane Quick for our theme music. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. We'll see you next time on Sounds Familiar.